It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. You're with us here on the Ideas Network. When someone goes to prison or jail, they can quickly become burdened by debt. They're no longer able to work their regular jobs. Their income can drop. They may have piled up legal fees, court fines, and any debt they already had before their incarceration will continue to compound. It creates significant financial challenges on top of the other life disruptions that come with incarceration. Royal Credit Union in Eau Claire is working to help reduce that burden and help incarcerated people work toward financial literacy. They run a financial education program in correctional facilities around northwestern Wisconsin that teaches incarcerated people about budgeting, credit, and smart financial decision-making. Last month, Royal received a national award from the Credit Union National Association for the success of the program, which they hope other financial institutions can replicate in other parts of the country. We're learning more about how that program works and the financial challenges that incarcerated people face. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Is this the story of your life or maybe of a loved one, somebody in your family uh, impacted by the criminal justice system? What kind of challenges did you see? Do you want to see more programs like this one in the Eau Claire area? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Cooper Larson is the Community Financial Education Coordinator at Royal Credit Union. She leads their Correctional Facility Financial Education Program and organized its curriculum. Cooper, thanks a lot for joining us today. You bet. Happy to be here. Well, start us off with the origin story. How did this program come to be? Yeah, so the program started back in 2015. We partnered with an organization called Literacy Chippewa Valley, and that organization does a lot in our correctional facilities already. They tend to do the GED training, some work readiness, all of that kind of fun stuff. So we partnered um, to see if it would be a success. They wanted that kind of education in there, and it was, and we've only grown from there. For the uh, people in jail and prison you work with, what do they see when they attend your, I guess, class or workshops on financial literacy? Yeah, so they see a lot of different stuff. Um, We run on like a two-class or two-week model. It depends on the facility because they're all unique. But we start out with kind of the basics of financial education. So we talk about budgeting. We talk about how to, you know, really manage the amount of money that you have. We talk about saving, the importance of making that a habit, the importance of paying attention to interest rates and all of that. And then we do a pretty good deep dive into credit as well. We talk about credit scores. We talk about how those impact lending decisions. And we talk a lot about how to look at your credit report and how to begin making changes to that, whether it's fraud that has happened because that's a common issue that they face or just getting some collections figured out and getting, you know, tabs on all of that for them. What kind of response have you gotten from people in jails and prisons uh, that you've worked with? Yeah, we've gotten a lot of really positive response. You know, we've found that they tend to have a general understanding of finance um, and kind of the basics, right, of budgeting and that credit's important. But the biggest thing that we see is an attitude change or a confidence change in them. So they feel better, you know, leaving and thinking that, okay, hey, I can actually do this. I can manage it. I know I can go to the credit union. I know I can go to whatever financial I'm at um, and ask the questions and someone hopefully will help me um, is kind of that, um, 
you know, feeling that they have afterwards. What are some of the, uh, I guess, logistical challenges that come with trying to run a program like this, but in a a jail or a prison? Yeah, uh, there's a pretty extensive approval process uh, to be able to get volunteers in there. So we have a cross-functional team across the organization that does it, but it's a smaller one too, just due to background checks and um, all the different clearance that has to do with it. So that's one. There's also, you know, you're limited to what you can bring in. So making sure that our programming, you know, matches what's allowed actually in the facilities too, like no staples, no pens with erasers, you know, all that different kind of stuff is important that you don't always think of. We are talking to Cooper Larson with the Royal Credit Union, Community Financial Education Coordinator there. She leads their Correctional Facility Financial Education Program, working with jail and prison inmates in northwestern Wisconsin. Now, as I mentioned, you won this uh, national award for this, the, the hope, I think, to replicate what you're doing in other communities. What do you advise uh, people, maybe your peers at other credit unions around the country, to do to, to start something like this up? Yeah, that's excellent question. Um, you know, first off, I would recommend talking to someone doing it. I meet uh, pretty often with different credit unions um, and individuals across the country, really, to talk about these types of programs. So I would say reach out. Um, if you're a credit union listening, we do have a white paper and a five-step guide uh, that we wrote with the National Credit Union Foundation. So they can find that at rcu.org correctional education. Um, And that's a really good guide for them. But, you know, I think the biggest thing is making sure that it aligns with your mission. It aligns with what you are hoping to do. Royal, our whole philosophy is, you know, people helping people, which is ingrained in credit unions as well. Um, And so, you know, this kind of stuff really ties into that perfectly. But making sure that it aligns with your credit union, that it aligns with the people that are going to teach it. You know, you go in there with the mindset that everyone's just a person, right? We all make mistakes. There's nothing different about us once we're in that classroom and we're all learning. So just, you know, making sure it's really the right fit for your credit union. Let's bring on a caller at 800-642-1234. Michael is with us in Appleton. Michael, hi. Oh, hi. Um, (laughs) They told me I was going to hang out and come on in the second half of the show. Go for it. Um, (laughs) My comment um, is, is basically... Uh, you, you know, from my perspective, um, you know, a, a lot of the time, very often for, for incarcerated individuals, he, he, the, the issue is not um, at its core financial literacy. Um, you know, if somebody gets out of jail or prison, uh, is, you know, and is looking for work and looking to be able to support themselves, whether employers are supposed to or not, they very often will deny folks jobs if they have uh, prior convictions, especially felony convictions on their records. And, you know, often uh, formerly incarcerated individuals are not able to find work or not able to find uh, work that pays enough for them to support themselves uh, or minimum wage jobs. Are, they say that they can even have trouble finding apartments. You know, oftentimes landlords will deny um, a a lease to someone based on prior convictions. And, you know, somebody can be the best budgeter in the world, but if your expenses are $1,500 and you only make 1000 
it doesn't matter how financially literate you are. Michael, I gotcha. Thanks for the call. Cooper, financial literacy. If you don't have any finances to start with, uh, Michael's concerned it won't necessarily help anybody. What do you think? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's one we get. You know, the individuals that we are working with, um, they choose to be in the class. And so a good chunk of them, you know, are part of some of the work release programs and are doing some additional education um, at the facilities they are being cared for at. Um, So sometimes they do start out with, you know, a job and a decent income. I think that there are a lot of other um, opportunities for them to get support within the institutions and and those facilities. So working with their caseworker um, and kind of what those options are before they get out. It's kind of all about preparing, I would say. Um, But he's absolutely right. You know, if expenses are more than what you're making, the goal is to try and get those expenses down and utilize some of those resources. We talk about the programs that are available, whether it be, you know, food stamps or some of those different things. That's just an example. I know sometimes they don't qualify for those programs, but that's kind of kind of how we look at it. I don't know if that's a helpful answer. Thanks for the call, Michael. Joseph joins us now in Wauwatosa. Joseph, hello. Hello. Um, I'm a formerly incarcerated person, and um, I left when I began my incarceration, I left $20,000 worth of credit card debt on the table because I was building a house. And then I had a loan that I took out to build the house that wasn't associated with the house. So that was $54,000 worth of debt that I'm still paying off because I lost and I lost the house. So I'm paying off the debt of the house that I lost. And um, I just wanted to applaud your guests for implementing this program because after being incarcerated with the gentleman that I've been, the gentleman that I was in, uh, in, interned with, I think it's a desperately needed program. Everyone is impacted by their credit score. Everyone is impacted by finances. And uh, I think it's just an excellent thing that you're doing. And um, I encourage if anybody who's incarcerated listening in that, that can take that program, absolutely. Joseph, thanks a lot uh, for the call. Uh, Cooper, just in our last moment, uh, some encouragement there from Joseph. Uh, Would you encourage uh, other correctional facilities around the state to reach out to to try to bring this kind of training in? Yeah, absolutely. I think it is necessary and, you know, everything's customizable. So classes kind of happen and move in the direction that the individuals, the students need. So I think it's well worth their time to invest in it. Thanks again for the call, Joseph. And Cooper, thanks for joining us. You bet. Thank you for having me. That's Cooper Larson, Community Financial Education Coordinator at Royal Credit Union in Eau Claire, with us today to talk about the Credit Union's Correctional Facility Education Program aimed at teaching financial literacy to people in jails and prisons. Coming up, we'll take a step back and look more broadly at financial challenges facing people in the criminal justice system. You could join in at 800-642-1234. If you uh, have an experience to share, your own or a loved one, would love to hear about it at 800-642-1234. We'll continue the conversation coming up on Central Time. It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferrett. We're picking up the conversation about the financial challenges facing incarcerated people. We just heard about an award-winning correctional facility financial education program in the Eau Claire area. 
Now we want to look at the issue more broadly, get a better understanding of what people in the prison system experience. You can join in at 800-642-1234. What questions do you have about the cost of incarceration? If you've been incarcerated yourself or a loved one has, did you find some surprising expenses along the way? Join in at 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Marianne Olson is a regional organizer and executive assistant for Expo of Wisconsin. That stands for Ex-Incarcerated People Organizing. Marianne, welcome to Central Time. Hi, thank you. And Jerome Dillard is executive director and one of the founders of Expo of Wisconsin. Jerome, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. Jerome, uh, people who haven't been in prison might be surprised to know that people who are in prison uh, need spending money sometimes. They come across costs that they might not expect. What kind of things uh, can come up? Oh, well, there's there's a number of things that could come up, but uh, it, most of those who are incarcerated were deemed indigent uh, prior to their conviction. So uh, from telephone calls to uh, being able to have snacks can come up. I, I feel that uh, where the real issues come in is once someone's released and come back into our community uh, and one of my pet peeves and something I've seen for decades now is individuals leaving prison with 60, 70, $100,000 in debt uh, due to child support accumulating with interest over 10, 15, 20 years that an individual may be uh, incarcerated. Uh, his child support uh, continues to go on at a rate that whatever it was that uh, it was set prior to his conviction uh, throughout those years. And Marianne, uh, with costs during prison, now uh, one of our WPR reporters ta- did a story on this a couple years back, and you were quoted on uh, health care co-pays while in prison. What kind of people, uh, what kind of things could people run into? Well, that I remember that story and what I shared was I watched women while I was incarcerated have to choose quite often between getting the health care they needed or buying hygiene or buying laundry soap because the medical copay was $7.50 and they only earned $8 a month. That's a very hard agonizing choice to make that no person should have to make ever. And Jerome, I've seen concerns that that could actually affect the health of inmates, not just their financial health, but their physical health. If they're kind of, if they're having to make that kind of choice. Absolutely. Uh, there are many who just do not have uh, $7 and 50 cents, believe that or not. Uh, but every time you see a healthcare provider, uh, inside our institutions, you have to pay that copay. Uh, why we have a copay, I don't know. I know that it's budgeted uh, uh, through the corrections budget uh, with the contracts that they have for uh, health care providers to come in and provide services. But $7.50 uh, could be $100 uh, to, to many of those behind the walls and fences. And Marianne, can you talk just a little bit about uh, the economics of working and paying for stuff while you're incarcerated? Uh, what what kind of jobs are there? What do they pay versus what do people spend money on while incarcerated? Thank you. That's a great question. Many people don't recognize that if you have an institution job 
the highest you'll ever make is 42 cents an hour. And those jobs are quite difficult to come by. The average pay, you're gonna be making between 11 and 13 cents an hour. That's it. Hmm. And we're paying a lot more than the average price for the products we're buying on Canteen. A 97 cent bottle of shampoo you can go buy in Walmart was costing us $5.60. And the, the pretty big difference there. And Jerome, I've seen concerns over the years in Wisconsin and elsewhere about the high cost of communicating with people outside of prison, very uh, high, maybe even punitive uh, charges for things like making a phone call. Has anything changed along those lines? Uh, nothing at all that I, uh, that I'm aware of. I would say that, you know, I, today I talk to families who are struggling to, uh, uh, put the bills for, uh, their loved ones who are calling them collect from, uh, our facilities in the state. And, uh, even a mom who's going without eating a couple of nights a week, uh, to be able to afford those calls. Yes. It, uh, and, you know, I, I know of places where those calls are free. Uh, so I, you know, it's a mixed bag. And I, in this state, there's no free phone calls. Uh, and it's hardship. It's causing hardships for families. Marianne, we just heard about that uh, financial literacy program. Can you take us back to, you know, when you were uh, leaving prison, going back out into the world, what what was it like for you to adjust and try to figure out how to uh, take charge of your financial life? Thank you for asking that question, because as one of your callers shared, financial literacy isn't always the barrier. And for myself, that wasn't a barrier. I had come from a corporate background. My felony conviction was a scarlet letter. I could not get hired. And it was the first time in my entire life I did not get a job I applied for. The bias and the stigma that is placed on people who are more than the choices they regret creates barriers and obstacles that are actually a block to the safe communities we all want. Jerome, are there changes you think we could make uh, to set people uh, coming out of prison, to set people up for uh, financial success when they come out? Well, that's uh, that's a good question. Uh, actually, I was with a friend. We were discussing something the other day. But I want to say child support uh, is a huge barrier. Uh, uh, and there's fines, fees, and restitutions that, uh, that are re- required to pay. Individuals... Uh, who are on supervision uh, have to pay to be on supervision. And it's a percentage of their their income. Uh, living wage jobs uh, uh, are somewhat rarity for this population. And so when you have child support being taken out, uh, you have fines, fees, and restitution uh, that has to be paid to your uh, uh, agent. And then there's supervision fees and we're not going to get into student loans and the overhead. Like uh, uh, your caller said, someone making $1,000 a month, but their uh, their expenses are 1500 We continuously find ourselves in that position where, you know, uh, oftentimes it's said with 
child support, I, you know, why am I working? I'm working to pay child support. I can't even afford to get back and forth to work after paying my bills. And that's a common common thread in this in the community for those returning from incarceration. Marianne, uh, based on your experience, are there things uh, that you think uh, either the state government could do or private employers or wherever you want to go with this uh, to help make the transition easier to maybe open up the job market to former inmates? There are. There are things that are happening more and more. Um, the city of Fitchburg is working with Expo. And I think Cooper Associated Bank across the state of Wisconsin has a bank to work program and anyone who's formerly incarcerated and mentions Expo Wisconsin can get free literacy training and tangible incentives for opening up an account with Associated Bank. So there are things happening. And Jerome, is there, apart from child support, another uh, change you think that would help uh, open up jobs to people coming out of prison just in our last half a minute or so? Well, we, we do know we have a worker shortage in our state. And uh, even with that, uh, I, you know, individuals are getting work, but uh, a living wage is, it's not just getting work, but being able to make a living wage that uh, you can afford to pay your bills uh, and take advantage of these financial literacy classes that, that you may have gotten inside or that you're getting in the community. Uh, Yes, uh, there's some opportunities. It's it's a little better than it's been in the in years past. But there's a worker shortage around the state that's uh, uh, calling on anyone with a pulse to, to be able to work. Thanks to both of our guests. We've heard heard there from Jerome Dillard, Executive Director of Expo Wisconsin, Marianne Olson, Regional Organizer for Expo. Expo is short for Ex Incarcerated People Organizing. They're with us today to talk about financial hardships that incarcerated people face. Earlier, we heard from the coordinator of a correctional facility financial education program from Royal Credit Union in Eau Claire. I'm Rob Ferrett. You're listening to Central Time here on the Ideas Network. This is Central Time. I'm Rob Barrett. In December, Colorado's state Supreme Court ruled that former President Donald Trump is ineligible for the presidency because of his involvement in the January 6th, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol. Therefore, the court ruled he should not be listed as a candidate on the presidential primary ballot in the state. That ruling was put on hold pending appeal. Trump's legal team did appeal that decision. Last week, the U.S. Supreme Court heard oral arguments in the case and is set to make a decision sometime soon, which will determine whether Colorado and other states could remove Trump from the ballot. Our next guest is an expert in election law and has been following the case closely. He joins us for a look at the legal arguments on both sides and what it could mean for the election this year and maybe in the future. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Do you agree with Colorado's decision to remove Trump from the ballot, or do you think it was overstepping? What are you hoping to see come out of the U.S. Supreme Court? What questions do you have about what's going on legally and constitutionally here? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234, or email ideas at wpr.org. 
Derek T. Muller is a professor of law at the University of Notre Dame Law School, where his research focuses on election law. Derek, thanks a lot for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me. Before we get into the twists and turns here, uh, let's start with the basis for this argument. Uh, It's one of the post-Civil War amendments uh, banning insurrectionists from holding office. Tell us a little bit about that law and why it or that constitutional amendment and why it's being brought up now. Sure. So a lot of times we think about Civil War and some of the amendments that came out of that Civil War that abolished slavery or guaranteed the right to vote regardless of race. Um, But other provisions have gone with a little less scrutiny in recent years until maybe this case. And one of those is Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment has a number of provisions, including guarantees of due process and equal protection. Um, But one of those provisions prohibits those who have previously taken an oath to support the Constitution of the United States and then turned around and engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the United States from holding future federal or state office. Uh, That's greatly simplified. There's a lot of uh, dispute about some of the terms, but I think the concern after the Civil War is that you have a number of people who were in state legislatures or even in Congress who had taken an oath to support the Constitution and then had betrayed that oath. They were uh, participating in the Confederacy. They attempted to secede from the Union. They fought in a war for years against that Union. And the notion was that those individuals in particular are, are, are unusually culpable. They'd taken that oath, they'd breached that oath, and therefore they should be uh, prohibited from, from taking office again. And, and while it had some force after the Civil War, it hasn't gotten a whole lot of attention in the last 130 years until the last couple of years. We had a couple of uh, legal articles by conservative law scholars saying, hey, this older constitutional amendment does indeed apply to former President Trump. The slight majority on the Colorado Supreme Court agreed. Can you uh, sum up for us the argument that, yes, in fact, as this court agreed, that yes, in fact, the 14th Amendment does apply to Donald Trump? Sure. There, it's, it's hundreds of pages of articles that have been written <laughs> in the last few months. So we'll see what we can do. I mean, I, I think the, the heart of the article, and there's a number of provisions that, that you kind of have to get through, but I think the heart of what drew some of these authors to this point is um, what is an insurrection and what does it mean to engage in an insurrection? And, and in their view, and again, proponents of the view who are trying to keep Trump off the ballot suggest that January 6th, 2021 rose to the level of what we could define as an insurrection. That is, it was a use of force. It's a public use of force for a public purpose to prevent Congress from counting electoral votes. It was violent. It was an uprising. And it was the kind of thing that, while not the scale of the Civil War, certainly fits within the text of that uh, provision of the Constitution. And Trump's speech on January 6th at the Ellipse, you know, um, just a few short steps away from the Capitol, helped incite the crowd to go march on the Capitol. He used words like fight uh, to to get them there and then uh, did nothing and sort of sat on the sidelines as this mob breached the Capitol and and rioted and disrupted the counting of electoral votes. So in their view, at least the proponents' view, that Trump was culpable, he engaged in insurrection, and as a result, he is barred from holding office. A lot of questions by the time this hits the U.S. Supreme Court. It seems like one that the justices focused on in oral arguments was who decides if this applies. And it seems like the justices were leaning toward not the states. A state can't necessarily do this. Can you talk about that aspect of the argument here? 
Yeah, there are lots of wrinkles to think about this. Um, so states had been enforcing this against state officials uh, right after the Civil War. They thought that state legislators were ineligible and, and might refuse to seat them. Um, but when it comes to federal officials, we think about this maybe a little bit differently. Uh, for members of Congress, we think that Congress typically judges the qualifications of candidates, not states. Um, and there was some worry on the court that why should one trial judge in Colorado sit down in a hearing and make a bunch of factual determinations and essentially say that this candidate is not qualified in a way that has tremendous implications across the United States and would stand and perhaps have force elsewhere unless the United States Supreme Court stepped in and told them otherwise. Um, so while we think about presidential elections having this national scope, they're formally happening on a state-by-state -state basis. And Colorado's argument was, well, we can do what we want in our state. Um, but the Supreme Court seemed very skeptical of this and, and the suggestion that they were trying to interfere with a federal election, with a, a potential future federal officer, and that before they did so, maybe we would need Congress to step in and provide some kind of guidance. But um, there are lots of different ways that the court could go, but they seem very disturbed with the notion that one state could have such an outsized influence in a presidential election. One argument over this clause, Derek, is whether it's self-enforcing. And I've seen the analogy to, okay, there's an age limit to run for president. If I tried to run for president back when I was 25, I wouldn't have met the age limit. I would have automatically been off. States would have been within their rights to keep me off the ballot, I guess. Uh, the argument that, well, it's in the Constitution now, the insurrection clause is self-enforcing, doesn't need Congress to pass it. How, how strong is that argument? I mean, the justices had a few different approaches or worries about this. Uh, so one was Chief Justice Roberts saying that the 14th Amendment as, as a structural matter is designed to limit state power, right? We just come out of a civil war. We're very skeptical of state power. The 14th Amendment says things like no state shall deprive any person of due process, uh, you know, at, or equal protection of the laws. So these are limitations on states. So it seems strange to think that Section 3 gives states power without some sort of uh, mechanism for Congress to step in. Another is to say, well, the word insurrection is a big word. And unlike mm -hmm. age, which we can determine right. pretty quickly and easily without dispute, uh, determining what was an insurrection and whether someone engaged into it is a much messier matter that suggests we need some congressional guidance. And finally, there was a point made that right after ratification of this provision in 1869, a Supreme Court justice who was then on a, on a lower court suggested in a different kind of case, and there's a lot of controversy around it, to suggest, uh, I'm not going to do this on my own. We need Congress to step in and provide some guidance. And, and Congress has passed some statutes in the past to figure out how to remove officials who you believe have engaged in insurrection. They've repealed some of those statutes in the past. And one of the arguments from Trump's legal team is you need to respect what Congress has done. Congress might pass statutes, it might repeal them, but we need to defer to the congressional process, at least when it comes to Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Talking to Derek Muller, professor of law at the University of Notre Dame Law School, looking at this ballot challenge to former President Trump under an insurrection clause in the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. You can join in with your thoughts, your reactions, your questions at 800-642-1234. Let's bring on a caller. Roy is with us in Racine. Roy, hi. Hey there. What did you want to bring up, Roy? Uh, I just think has anybody so far actually been charged with insurrection? 
because for me, from my perspective, I see Black Lives Matter riots and the January 6th riots as just riots. A dissatisfied people dissatisfied with a rather undemocratic government. Roy, thanks a lot for the call. Derek, a lot of people have been charged with the January 6th, uh, I, I won't call it insurrection, riots, if you want to call it that for now, at the Capitol. Uh, but Derek, Roy says, are they being charged with insurrection or something different? Yeah, so that uh, there's a provision of the United States Code 2383, which is the Insurrection Act. It was actually first passed before uh, the, the 14th Amendment during the Civil War. It's been updated a little bit since then. Um, and no one has been charged uh, under the Insurrection Act. Uh, Donald Trump was not charged by the special prosecutor, uh, Jack Smith, on this provision. Uh, and one of Trump's arguments is to say, this is the way that Congress wants us to resolve things by charging and criminally convicting people through the Insurrection Act. And if you're not going to do that, um, that you're not going to accept the method that Congress has taken. States can't do their own thing. So that is an argument in his favor. On the other side, people would point out, look, after the Civil War, um, a lot of former Confederates were not charged with insurrection. They were not criminally convicted. Uh, it's just sort of a matter of fact that they supported the United States or the Confederacy against the United States during the Civil War and therefore should be excluded from office. So part of it is, is this difficulty of thinking about what does it mean to have this provision on the books? Are we supposed to use that because Congress says that's the only basis to do so? Or is it acceptable for states to use their own processes and enforce the guarantees of the Constitution on their own without some explicit guidance from Congress saying you're forbidden from doing that? Thanks for that call, Roy. And Roy uh, echoes uh, something from the Trump legal team here saying this is more like a riot, uh, less than a rebellion. Uh, and uh, comparing it to, say, a Black Lives Matter riot, the counter argument, I think, is if it's a riot with the intention of overturning the results of an election— does that become something more than a riot? Is this something that the courts are wrestling with? Yeah, again, the, the Supreme Court didn't seem to want to spend too much time on defining what an insurrection was or getting into the events of January 6th. I think if you read some of the historical briefing, they would say there has to be some sort of public purpose or sort of public resistance to government or something like that. So you could imagine that in some uh, some other riots that have taken place in the United States, if somebody is throwing Molotov cocktails into a courthouse or something like that, there might be things that we would say rise to this level of resistance and force against the entity, the government itself. But part of it is that there are disputes about what kinds of conduct is violent enough to rise to this level. Again, none of these things are nearly at the scale of the Civil War. Um, another is to say the facts of any given outbreak or occurrence or violence, what kinds of things rise to that level. So uh, again, it, it is a challenge. It's, it's an underused provision of the Constitution. And so we are exploring it for the first time and, and uh, or first time in recent memory and, and debating its meaning. Talking to Derek T. Muller, professor of law at the University of Notre Dame, with us for a look at the latest in the case Trump versus Anderson. That's the case before the U.S. Supreme Court that's going to decide whether Colorado could remove former President Trump from the ballot in the 2024 presidential election, opening up the possibility for other states to do the same. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Have you been following this case? Do you think it's going to end up being significant or do you expect it to just be uh, overturned and we're back to our regularly scheduled election? What decision are you hoping to see? What questions do you have about the many legal and constitutional wrinkles here? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. 
We'll pick up the conversation coming up here on Central Time. This is Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. We're picking up our talk with University of Notre Dame law professor Derek T. Muller about the Trump ballot case currently before the U.S. Supreme Court. We had some oral arguments last week set to be decided when they're ready to decide it. You can join in at 800-642-1234. What do you want to see come out of this? Who should get to decide if a presidential candidate or other candidate, for that matter, violates this insurrection clause in the 14th Amendment? Join in at 800-642-1234. Derek, before we go back to our callers, you know, I never try to predict the outcome of what the U.S. Supreme Court is going to decide. I don't ask other people to. Based on questioning, it sure seems like they're, they're going to slap down the Colorado Supreme Court on this, though. Do I, does that seem right? Yeah, I mean, I think there was broad consensus on that point to the point sort of you raised earlier about the notion about one state weighing in on this and affecting the whole political process. Yeah, it, it is hard to, to figure this out uh, from oral argument itself. But whenever a plaintiff has a claim like the voters have here, they have to win on every single issue. Uh, in order for Trump to win, he just has to win on one. And so when his attorney got up there, there were different uh, justices who were uh, pressing back on various parts of the argument. But there's no question that when the respondents were up there, the court seemed to coalesce around this view, at least eight justices and perhaps all nine, um, that, that the Supreme Court should not be involved in this process and that Colorado shouldn't be. So uh, how they exactly get there remains to be seen. I think it'll be in the very near future, but I think all sides point to some pretty broad consensus that Trump's name will re- will remain on the ballot. Let's go back to our callers now. Chris is with us in Fairchild. Chris, hi. Hi. So I guess my question is, if one is to take the position that this uh, seems to lend too much power to one state to make a decision, when we look at recent Supreme Court rulings, and I'll just use Dobbs as a kind of one of recent fact, which seems to shift more power back into the state's uh, position, uh, how do you reconcile this argument? And, and two, when they do rule, do you believe that there will be a, a peculium decision, or do you think we'll see a series of individual? Chris, thanks for the call. That first point, Derek, uh, Chris say, seeing a trend toward the Supreme Court uh, giving more power to states, this could push back in the other direction, he says. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. I think uh, part of it is that different provisions of the Constitution could give more or less power to states in different areas. And I think if you were to ask justices on the court, they would explain that they have consistent views on these points. But there's no question that in some places, like Dobbs, the, the jurisprudence has been this is a matter for states to decide, not the courts. And there's a there's a likelihood in this case that the court says, no, this is a national interest. There's a national scope here and state power is limited. Um, so I, I think that's certainly true. And Justice Kagan in particular uh, at oral argument was was pressing this view and suggested that the Supreme Court for 50 years, actually, when it comes to other election law cases about presidential elections, has said states have less of an interest in presidential elections and their regulations simply because the office is national in nature. Um, so you can find some trends on uh, this case stretching back again for some time. Um, but you, you have to start parsing out which parts of the Constitution you think are more uh, state specific, which you think are more federal specific and what the relationship is is between the two. And thanks for the call, Chris. I looked up Chris's lat there per curium, meaning by the mm-hmm. court. So uh, will the court issue a decision that's just by the court, not signed by one justice? Or are we going to see a lot of different takes? Of course, we won't know till we see it. Your thoughts on what we might see, Derek? 
Yeah, I mean, most famously to think about Bush versus Gore in 2000, where the Supreme Court wrote per curiam, and you didn't see any one justice's name attached to that decision. But um, you know, several justices wrote several opinions, uh, some of them in dissent, one of them concurring. So I think there's a question right now about what this looks like on the Supreme Court. On the one hand, you have uh, some people, Justice Thomas was on the court during Bush versus Gore. Um, others litigated some of these issues, like Justice Kavanaugh, um, you know, in in the trenches as a lawyer in 2000. I think they realized that it doesn't look great for the court to have so many fractured opinions. And if there is broad consensus, could you have a per curiam without any name attached? Uh, at the same time, you know, justices might have strong views on some of the other issues in this case, and they might want to write separately. So um, I, I do anticipate the majority opinion will come out relatively quickly and would likely be a per curiam opinion. Um, but it remains to be seen how much the court is able to, to hold uh, everyone together and how many people might feel compelled to write their own pieces on the side. Thanks, Chris, for calling in. Will joins us now in Seymour. Will, hi, what did you want to bring up? Hey, Rob, uh, the way that I see this, I think that there's definitely a case to be made that uh, Trump could be ineligible for the presidency with a conviction of insurrection. But I think it has to be that it has to be a conviction of a specifically defined crime or. Um, uh, yeah, like uh, uh, some kind of wrongdoing, because otherwise it's more of a, a matter of partisan opinion of following more the spirit of the law than the letter. And that's this is a case where you really have to stick to the letter of the law is what I believe. Well, thanks a lot for the call. And I've seen that argument elsewhere, Derek, the idea that, okay, if we're going to say somebody is guilty of insurrection, we better prove them to be guilty of insurrection in a court. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the arguments that Trump pressed and, and Justice uh, Amy Coney Barrett on the Supreme Court was also concerned about this, is that one state having a hearing and uh, admitting some expert testimony or reviewing some tweets as, as happened with, with Trump on January 6th, uh, you know, that that's not a great position uh, to define the term insurrection and to conclude that somebody is responsible for it. And if there's some dispute or some fights about it, you have to bring it back to the United States Supreme Court, which might have to, to get involved if these questions start to arise with increasing frequency and we start to have more disputes about what an insurrection is. And then we're asking the Supreme Court to revisit these questions. For the criminal case, you have a, a much longer window to introduce evidence. You have a much higher burden of proof and you have a much cleaner resolution. And again, for Colorado, they're saying, well, that's OK. That's one way of doing it. But we think there should be other ways as well. Um, again, it, it's not clear that the Supreme Court buys that argument, uh, but again, we'll see what the opinion uh, says when it comes down. Time for one more caller. Tony is with us in Ironwood. Hi, Tony. Hey, um, I listened carefully to the arguments and, you know, I, I thought about the state right concept of, um, you know, them deciding who they want on their ballot. And then I think that it was sort of tossed aside when one of the attorneys said, well, we would decide and then you the Supreme Court would decide if we were right. And I thought, well, oh boy, that's really burdensome. How do you do that? You know, and you, every, you know, everybody would have separate trials, 50 different trials if they wanted. So I think that the issue then is sort of along the lines of standing that, you know, it didn't happen in Colorado. If this uh, insurrection claim was to be made, it would have to be brought up where it happened. And then, if there were anything to be reviewed about, you know, the, the validity of the findings of that trial, 
then it could go to the Supreme Court. See, see he's not even charged with insurrection. So it's sort of, it's, it, it, how do they, how do they come to that? And then. My God, Tony, we're just about out of time. Thanks for calling in. Derek, uh, could you talk about the possible outcome of if the Supreme Court would open it up to individual states to make this decision? Just in our last, sorry, half a minute or so. No, no. Yeah, Colorado would keep them off the ballot. Maine already has, and some other states might follow suit. But it's worth noting that states don't have an obligation to do that. They might want to keep him on the ballot. But I think what it would set up for is a very, very messy summer in uh, Milwaukee (laughs) as the Republican National Committee gathers together for its convention and deciding, uh, should we keep off this candidate? candidate uh, who might be off the ballot in at least some states, and that would be its own separate political nightmare. Derek, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us today. Um, Thanks for having me. That's Derek T. Muller, professor of law at the University of Notre Dame Law School. His research there focuses on election law, and we've been talking about this case before the U.S. Supreme Court that will decide whether or not former President Trump appears on ballots for the presidential race in the general election this fall. That after a Colorado Supreme Court ruling saying, yeah, we could keep him off because of a constitutional clause. Tomorrow in the morning show with Kate Archer Kent, new inflation numbers are out. What does it mean for the economy and for you? Join the conversation tomorrow morning at 8 here on the Ideas Network. The other day I told you about the auction of a 300-year-old lemon found in a cabinet in England. Well, now the U.K. has topped that old food story with an egg from 1,700 years ago. As reported by the BBC, archaeologists discovered this egg on an ancient Roman site in England. It's your basic chicken's egg. Still looks like an egg on the outside, a little scuffed up. But the weird thing is when they scanned it, it still looked like an egg on the inside with some liquid and a distinct yolk and egg white. It hadn't dried out completely as they thought it might. There have been older eggs found in the world of archaeology. Those had been mummified on purpose. This one looks like it was tossed into a watery pit, maybe as part of a ritual. The big unanswered question can you still cook with it? Tune in to Food Friday this week to find out. Okay, not really. I don't think they're giving that egg away uh, anytime soon. This is Central Time on the Ideas Network. This is Central Time. I'm Rob Barrett. Last week, southern Wisconsin experienced a rare extreme weather event, the first ever recorded tornado in February. Paired with recent reports that 2023 was the hottest year on record, evidence the rapid progression of climate change has been on a lot of people's minds in the last month. A Wisconsin climate scientist is here to give us the latest on climate news and what it means here in the state. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Does the weather we've been having in Wisconsin seem unusual to you? Are things looking different when it comes to snow cover this year in recent years? Ice cover, for that matter? Are you worried about the state of the climate? What questions do you have about how rising global temperatures might affect us here in Wisconsin? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or email ideas at WPR.org. Steve Vavris is the Wisconsin State Climatologist and a senior scientist at the Nelson Institute Center for Climatic Research at UW-Madison. He's also co-director of the Wisconsin Initiative on Climate Change Impacts. Steve, welcome back to Central Time. 
Thank you, Rob. Good to be back. Before we focus in on the state, Steve, I'm seeing different groups do their reporting on 2023 and the year in climate and heat. It looks like a record year as far back as we trace these things, right? It was. It was not only a record year globally, but by quite a bit. It was really shocking, especially toward the end of the year, how much warmer than normal we were. And we hear about that, okay, 1.5 degrees Celsius average as a threshold we're really worried about. Are we dancing around that now? We sure are. We touched it at times last year. Um, but when we talk about crossing that 1.5 degrees Celsius, Celsius threshold uh, beyond pre-industrial temperatures, what we're really talking about is a long-term average, not just one especially warm year. And how many of our most recent, how many of the most, uh, the hottest years we know about have happened recently? Oh, it's amazing. The past 10 years have been the 10 warmest years on record globally. Now, our heat records don't go back, you know, super far in geological terms, Steve, but I've seen some people syncing this up to what we know from geological records. And I'm seeing statements like, yeah, as far as we know, we haven't had a year this warm in something on the order of 100,000 plus years. Even in that time span, this is unusual? Yeah, it needs to be couched, though, in the fact that we, we have these interglacial warm periods that typically last about 10,000 years, and then we have long glacial periods. You know, 20,000 years ago, Madison was covered in ice, for example, and much of the state was. Uh, so we wouldn't expect to be as warm during a glacial period as we are now. But even if we compare, you know, we'd have to go back about 100,000 plus years to find the last warm interglacial period to be anything comparable to today. Uh, the causes, uh, is this what we've been talking about all along here, greenhouse gases causing these warming trends? Right. So interglacial periods happen naturally, but we are amplifying the warm interglacial that we're in right now because of uh, carbon emissions. And so that's adding to the, the natural heat that we would ordinarily have. And it's causing the warming to be much more rapid than it would otherwise be. So we, we definitely know that humans are the the cause behind the recent warming trend. Talking to Steve Vavris, Wisconsin State climatologist, looking at global warming, another record year last year, and what it means for Wisconsin. You could join in with your observations, your questions at 800-642-1234. Steve, we've been talking about the world so far. What has Wisconsin been looking like over the last 10 years in these uh, temperature records? Well, last year, Wisconsin had its fourth warmest on record, so it wasn't quite as bad as the, the global heat, but it was close. And it's likely that this is going to go down as the warmest winter on record in Wisconsin. We, we define or classify winters uh, climatologically from the beginning of December to the end of February. So we still have a good couple of weeks to go in February, but right now we're running so far ahead of any other winter that I think it's likely that this winter will go down as Wisconsin's warmest. Now, some people might say, okay, warm winter, that doesn't sound so bad. I don't like to be cold, but uh, I know this has lots of ecological impacts when uh, lakes and uh, certain types of ecosystems don't get cold enough. What are you watching for for the impact of a warm winter like this? 
Right. So there's ecological impacts, there's potentially agricultural impacts, there's certainly economic impacts. The tourism industry in Wisconsin has really been hurt this winter, uh, especially in northern Wisconsin, where normally it's pretty reliable snow cover and ice cover. That hasn't been the case this year. And so resorts, uh, festivals, things that you'd expect to, to count on for winter in Wisconsin just haven't been able to happen. And that's true not only in our state, but the Great Lakes. Uh, looks like record low ice cover on the Great Lakes as well. Only 3% right now of the Great Lakes is ice covered, much, much lower than normal. And so there, there's a whole cascade of societal effects when we have weather this unusual. So we see in the news these uh, global records for 2023, these long-term trends. Uh, this news from last week, Steve, this tornado in Wisconsin in February seemed like a, a punctuation mark. What do you look at when you when you look at a, a weird weather event like this? Is this something that uh, climate change could make uh, more common? I was surprised as anyone by that tornado last week. That really was amazing that we would have tornadoes in Wisconsin and, and a pretty one of those was pretty substantial, pretty strong, quite damaging. Um, I would say that the tornado last week is not directly a sign of climate change, but it's an indication that Wisconsin's tornado season is probably expanding in a warming climate. So we typically expect tornadoes to happen during the warmer months when we have enough warm and humid air. We don't expect it to happen in February or January, but as we spread that warm season from uh, you know, the spring to the fall into the late winter, and, and then again in the early winter at the end of the, the fall, that's when we might be uh, seeing an expression of climate change. Can you talk about what it is about climate change that's lengthening the potential tornado season? Is it just that, hey, if we're warmer longer, the conditions, the potential conditions for tornadoes become more likely in different parts of the year? Right. So the reason why our tornadoes happen in the warmer months, I believe they peak during June, is because we need the right ingredients to form a tornado. And what you need is warm, humid air near the ground and cold air aloft with what we call wind shear or a change in wind velocity with height. Normally in February, it just isn't warm and humid enough at, at all to produce enough heat and fuel to create a tornado. That warm humid air tends to rise and mix and that's what creates the spin that causes a tornado. Uh, typically, we're never near that warm, but we had record highs in southern Wisconsin last week. It was in the middle 50s, which is so far above normal. And so that created enough fuel with, with the upper air wind shear to generate those unusual tornadoes. It's Brianna Collar at 800-642-1234. Bill is with us in Milwaukee. Bill, hi. Hello. Which, Enjoying the warm weather, even though I'm a skier, I kind of miss the skiing. Yeah, what did you want to bring up, Bill? Oh, um, in addition, all of this carbon dioxide that we produce, it also, the majority of it, I believe it's over 70% of it, dissolves into the oceans and lakes. And that also increases the acidity of the water, and it reduces the amount of oxygen the water can dissolve for the things that swim around in the, in the lakes and the oceans. And uh, I was wondering how that's impacting the other aspects of it. Uh, Bill, thanks for the call. Steve, is that something you watch for? 
It is something that climatologists watch for. Um, uh, Bill is right that about uh, roughly about half, I think, uh, of the airborne carbon emissions get absorbed by the oceans and vegetation, and the remainder stays in the atmosphere. So the oceans and, and vegetation are helping us out. Uh, and, and the caller makes a great point that the acidity of the waters increases as we put more, more carbon dioxide into them. And this is important when we think about so-called geoengineering solutions to try to reduce the amount of heating of, of the earth as we put more carbon emissions into the atmosphere. Even if we can find a geoengineering solution that tempers the warming trend, most of them don't do anything about the acidity problem. The carbon dioxide still goes into the oceans and makes them more acidic. And uh, as the caller explained, uh, that reduces their ability to take up oxygen. Bill, thanks for that call. We're talking to Steve Vavris, Wisconsin State Climatologist, Senior Scientist at the Nelson Institute Center for Climatic Research at UW-Madison. We're talking about the current state of climate change, how current global temperatures compare to historical trends, what it means for the future of our planet and of our state. You can join in at 800-642-1234. What possible consequences of climate change are you concerned about? Do you see changes happening here in Wisconsin? Uh, just two pieces of news I'm seeing over the last couple of days. Berkabiner, artificial snow, shorter routes. Is that affecting you? Do you tap maple syrup? Did you do it early this year? Many of your maple tapping colleagues have. Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. We'll pick up the conversation coming up on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. We continue our conversation with Steve Vavris, Wisconsin State Climatologist, co-director of the Wisconsin Initiative on Climate Change Impacts, talking about how current global temperatures compare to historical trends, how a warming atmosphere can affect Wisconsin now and down the road. You can join in at 800-642-1234 with your questions, maybe your observations, something that looks different in your neck of the woods in recent years as things get warmer. Join in at 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Steve, I want to talk to you about uh, your role with the Wisconsin Initiative on Climate Change Impacts. I just briefly mentioned, too, that I ran into in the news uh, without even really looking for it. People tapping maple syrup a month and a half earlier than usual. Berkabiner race not getting the natural snow they need. What kind of things are you watching for when it comes to climate change impacts here in Wisconsin? Well, you gave a couple of great recent examples, and I, I, the, the um, undertone of your comments is really about adaptation. Uh, we, we are going to have to adapt to a changing climate, and, and we're going to need to be creative about it. Creating artificial snow is one way to do it, but it's disruptive and it's expensive, and it's certainly not as good as the natural. Last year, they had plenty of snow for that race. Um, the maple syrup production being so early is really amazing uh, that it's this far ahead of schedule, but the, the trees don't really know what month it is. What they, they feel is the temperatures, and we're having spring-like temperatures this early. So uh, we need to be thinking about ways statewide and, and societal-wise, um, different sectors on how do we adapt. Let's bring on a caller at 800-642-1234. Laura is with us in Madison. Laura, hi. What did you want to bring up? Hi, Rob. Um, I learned recently that um, the rainforest, preserving the rainforest is a good way to curb some of our climate change problems. And I, and I also learned that indigenous groups are the ones who are best equipped to preserve the rainforest. 
And I was just wondering if your guests could comment on that. And I wondered if that would be a good use of our efforts for advocacy against climate change. Laura, thanks a lot for the call, Steve. A lot of people point toward rainforests as a, a dense biomass uh, that absorbs a lot of carbon dioxide. How important a part of the puzzle is that? It's very important. Yeah, it's the, the potential loss of our global tropical rainforests is really a serious one. And I think the jury is still out on how sensitive they are to climate change but we know we cannot afford to lose them. And there's some evidence that suggests that uh, it could be a self-reinforcing cycle. That is, if they warm up and dry out too much, then it could just perpetuate itself and we could see a demise of the whole rainforest ecosystem. And of course, that would be extremely damaging for ecological reasons, but also for climatic reasons, because they're really important for affecting weather patterns. So we definitely need to do what we can to preserve our tropical rainforests, even though they're very far away from Wisconsin. Laura, thanks a lot for the call. Closer to home, Steve, are there things uh, that you look at and say, yeah, Wisconsin could be part of uh, the solution, apart from donating to, say, work with the rainforests? Right. So there's a couple sort of two, uh, a two pronged approach when it comes to dealing with climate change. One is mitigation. That is what ways can we uh, reduce the problem from its source? That is what, what can we do to reduce carbon emissions or try to draw down the carbon that's in the atmosphere? The other part of it is adaptation, which I talked about earlier, uh, and that is accepting that there will be some climate change, no matter how much we mitigate it. And in the near term, that's probably the most important thing to do here and now. And um, so WIKI, uh, our Wisconsin Initiative on Climate Change Impacts, is focused on both of those, but our bread and butter has always been about adaptation. What can we do to cope uh, with the changing climate? What solutions can we foster to help deal with its impacts? Could you, thanks again for that call. Could you talk a little more about some of the things we might uh, want to start doing now to mitigate, to prepare for the impacts of climate change? One example is heat waves. Uh, we, we've always had heat waves, right, every summer, regardless of climate change, but they're likely to get worse and they're likely to get more humid and therefore more impactful as the climate warms. And so one of the ways we can adapt is figuring out better ways to cope. Those could be things like um, adding more trees in urban areas to reduce urban rainfall, um, urban heat islands and um, uh, really preparing for these sorts of things um, because there's a lot of evidence that, for instance, when it comes to heat waves and heat wave deaths, there's much that can be done uh, to lower the incidence. And um, other ways that we can adapt, uh, adjusting our infrastructure, for example, producing a, a better handling of stormwater runoff as we have larger rainstorms. So all across the board, agriculture, forestry, wildlife, human health, there's all sorts of ways that we can adapt and, and some tried and true solutions to help us on that path. Steve Vavris is with us, Wisconsin State Climatologist, Senior Scientist at the Nelson Institute Center for Climatic Research at UW-Madison. Talk about the latest numbers uh, when it comes to climate change, record heat last year, 2023 globally. And how this all affects Wisconsin, still time for you to join in at 800-642-1234 with your thoughts or your questions. That's 800-642-1234. Tom is with us now in Milwaukee. Tom, hi. Hello. Um, I have a question um, about a study that just came out in the last couple of days, at least that hit the media, about the uh, Gulf Stream, which doesn't affect directly Wisconsin so much, but... This is a worldwide situation, and the Gulf Stream, uh, initially, when I followed this for years, we're saying, like, oh, no, it's not going to stop. 
But now the latest one just came out um, that it is going to almost certainly um, slow down and stop in the next couple of decades. And that has extreme uh, consequences for Northwest Europe uh, for being much colder. But even worse, it has the effect on the global south, which didn't really cause this problem uh, that we did in the global north. It'll be much hotter in the south. And so I'd just like your guest to talk about that study and the consequences of it. Tom, thanks for that call. And Steve, as I understand it, the Gulf Stream, this ocean circulating current uh, with uh, less polar ice, more water, changes the salinity, changes that circulation pattern. And that's our sort of uh, heat regulating system for many places uh, in the world. Uh, have you have you seen the latest studies on this and the potential impact? I have seen that study. It's making big news. Um, and so I'm glad the caller brought this up. So um, the concern is that we have this big global overturning ocean circulation, basically sinking cold, dense waters in high latitudes, upwelling in lower latitudes. And the return flow is the Gulf Stream in the Atlantic. And so that transports heat from the tropics up to high latitudes. And it helps to keep Europe considerably warmer than it otherwise would be. And we've known for years that that overturning circulation cell is vulnerable to climate change. Most climate models project that it would slow down. It sounds like this newer study is projecting more dire uh, consequences of a complete shutdown, which we know has happened in the geologic past. So it's not unprecedented. But uh, the the takeaway from this newer study is that it's um, maybe more consequential and maybe more imminent potentially than some of the other studies. But with all things in science, we need to do more research to to get a better handle on that. But for sure, it would have impacts in a big way in Europe, cooling the climate there, but also affecting monsoon circulations, likely to reduce the monsoon rains. And so it would definitely have global repercussions if that takes place. Thanks for that call, Tom, at 800-642-1234. Steve, I want to talk a little bit more about climate change and its impact on Wisconsin. Uh, Risks of more extreme drought, but also risks of more extreme localized flooding. Uh, I don't know. It seems like it might be easier to mitigate for drought or flooding. How do you get ready for the potential risk of both or either? That's a great question, Robin. I think a lot of people were wondering that same thing last year because Wisconsin saw extreme, if not unprecedented, uh, precipitation variability. We just bounced back and forth from really wet to really dry. We had the wettest winter on record, and then we flipped completely in May and had one of the driest summers on record. And so this back and forth makes it really hard to plan for, especially for agriculture. Um, And so if that really is the the direction we're heading in the future, and and there's some evidence that suggests that we will be seeing bigger and more abrupt swings from very wet to very dry and back again, that does require different planning than if we're just heading for a wetter climate with more extreme rainfall. So uh, I think last year was a good case study and something we can learn from uh, what worked and what didn't when it came to strong precipitation variations from month to month. Steve, in just our last minute, what to you in Wisconsin is the most urgent thing we should be doing right now when it comes to getting ready to deal with climate change? 
You know, I think it depends on who you are and what sector you're in. Um, depending if you're a, if you're a farmer, you have one uh, one set of concerns. If you're in in a stormwater engineer, you have a different set of concerns. So I think you really have to tailor uh, your approach toward what your your interests are and what your responsibilities are. Uh, but Wiki has an assessment report that came out two years ago that's still very much uh, relevant, and I encourage people to look at it because it does provide not only an assessment of climate change in Wisconsin, but also offers a set of solutions um, from our 14 working groups, which has have experts from across the board, forestry, wildlife, tourism, etc. So that's a great resource that people can use to help us adapt to our changing climate. Steve, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us today. Thanks so much, Rob. That's Steve Vapras, the Wisconsin State Climatologist and a Senior Scientist at the Nelson Institute Center for Climatic Research at UW-Madison. He joined us for a look at why 2023 was the warmest year on record, where we stand with the future of climate change and how it all affects us here in Wisconsin and how we can prepare for at least some of its impacts. Coming up tomorrow here on Central Time, it's tax season and the American tax system has a lot of quirks compared to other countries. We'll ask the question, why are we doing taxes this way? And the Red Cross and other health and medical groups say there's a shortage of donated blood. We'll dig into the latest shortfall and the donation system and how it works in the first place. You can maybe share your experience as a donor along the way. That and more coming up tomorrow here on Central Time.